Our Old Testament reading is from Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Uh, This is Micah 5, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word which you have given to us. And Lord, we do ask that as we read it now together, that you would give us ears to hear, you would give us minds to understand, and that you would give us hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Micah 5, verses 1 through 4. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Turning into Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. This is in the middle of a, uh, a vision that John is having while in exile on the island of Patmos. And uh, it is a revelation. If you go back to the beginning uh, of the book, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, There's two ways you can translate that first line, a revelation from Jesus Christ or the revelation of Jesus Christ, and they're both applicable here. (laughs) And so that word choice, got to kind of have both of them in there. Because Jesus is giving the revelation, but it's also revealing who Jesus is. So in this vision, John looks. And this is Revelation 7, 9 to 17. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away 
every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are actually looking at Matthew chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 12, that happened just after, well, after Jesus was born. It actually starts out by saying, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And how long after? We don't know. I really do think the best guess is put it at around a year after. But anyway. Um, But whatever, it was sometime after. And so as we are just after Christmas now, seems a good time to be looking at what took place after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But before we read that, I also want to tell you about a surprise wedding I did one time, because those are kind of (laughs) rare. And it was really cool. This is uh, every, one of the things I really like about weddings is that every wedding is unique. Uh, Every wedding is, on the one hand, the same thing, because you're marrying two people. On the other hand, they're unique, because it's it's two uh, unique individuals who are coming together to be married. And as they uh, plan this wedding, those personalities are going to come through too. And the things that they choose uh, to incorporate are going to be a part of that uh, service. And so I like that they're all unique and different and special. And, um, and you're probably not allowed to have favorites. But one of my favorites... <laughs> would have to be this this surprise wedding uh, because of how different it was in that it was a surprise. But here's the way that it worked. This was my cousin getting married a couple of years ago. And they had uh, both, she and her fiance had both been married before. Everybody knew they were engaged. They just hadn't set a date. They called me and they said, here's the deal. We both have done the big wedding thing in the past. They'd both been married, divorced, now they're getting remarried. They said, we've, we've done that before. What we want this time is um, we don't want all the, all the extra stuff. We want to focus on the marriage. And so what we planned was to have a, they said, we don't even, we don't even want to be like the center of attention kind of thing. <laughs> so they said, what we want to have there is we want to have family. We want to have our families there. That's it. And we don't even want to tell anybody in advance. We don't want to make a big deal out of it. So we had Thanksgiving at my mom's house. Everybody comes for Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving meal is over, it's a beautiful day that year. We said, hey, why don't we go outside and take a family picture? We take the family picture. Uh, one of us up on the porch to take the picture out in the yard. All right, that all works. And now while everybody's standing there, I go up on the porch and say, hey, while we're all here, why don't I invite these two forward? Let's have a wedding. And so that's where the surprise part came in. We had the wedding, and then we go back inside and have pie. That was the, uh, the reception. It was lovely. It was, I highly recommend it. Anyway, <laughs> obviously that's not going to work for everybody. <laughs> but here was the thing that I really liked about it is, uh, yeah, the surprise part was a lot of fun. But what I really liked about it is that the way that the couple came to me to plan the wedding from the very beginning, their question was, what's the absolute minimum we have to do to be married? With the understanding that we'll probably add some other things around that, 
But that's where we want to start, is what is the central part? What is it that we're actually doing here? And if we just did that, we'd still be married. What's that? And I love that they asked that question because that's not normally the way that people approach weddings. Normally people approach weddings with everything I've ever seen or heard about or read about, and I've got to somehow fit it all in. And if the marriage part kind of falls out, oh well. (laughs) But the way they approached it was the other way around, completely backwards from the way people normally do. And they said, we want to be married. How do we do that? And we'll figure the wedding part out (laughs) around that. This is uh, a story I tell you, not just because I like the story, but I do. The same thing when we come to Christmas celebrations and what it looks like when we celebrate Christmas and how many times our Christmas celebrations, we don't ask that question. What does it mean to actually celebrate Christmas? But we take everything that we've seen or heard or read about and we say, we've somehow got to do all these things if it's really going to be Christmas. And if Jesus falls out along the way, oh well. Our story this morning, passage from Matthew 2, I think helps us remember what that is about. Not just for the Christmas celebration, but even after Christmas. Moving forward from Christmas. Why is it that Jesus came? Who is he? And uh, I have titled the sermon, King of the Jews, because I think that is one of the questions that is at the heart of the Gospel of Matthew from start to finish is what, who is the real king of the Jews? And so as you go through um, from the very beginning, the question is always, is it going to be Herod? Is it Pilate? Or is it Jesus? And what does, that, what does it mean for him to be the king? Um, here we go. This is... Matthew 2, 1 to 12, in a passage that you've probably uh, read before or heard before. But here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to, <clears throat> excuse me, they returned to their country by another route. As I say, it's a familiar story. 
We know about the three wise men, right? Don't worry. I mean, it doesn't say there are three wise men. We just know about those, right? We just know there are three wise men. You see them in the nativity scenes. Uh, don't worry, they're not actually in the nativity scene. <laughs> they come after, but anyway. Um, but we know about them from all the pictures. We know about them from the nativity scenes. Um, but here is, here is the account. This is the account. This is where we know of them from. And we see that they're uh, wise men who have brought three gifts. That's why we tend to associate it with three wise men. But it's wise men who have brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Probably plenty of good reason for each of those. I'll let you figure out why those three, as they might relate to the three words we talked about on Christmas Eve of Jesus, meaning the Lord saves, as Christ, who's the Messiah or the anointed one, on the throne of David, and Emmanuel, which is God with us. I think each one goes with each of those, and I'll let you figure that out. That'll be fun for you. Anyway, but they bring these three gifts, and they give them to a baby. Why? Why do they travel all the way? Why do they give gifts to a baby? What is the point of all that? And it goes back to that phrase, right? King of the Jews. That's what they ask when they first get to Jerusalem. They see a star and somehow in what they have worked out in in the stars is that that there is different and it means something. And here's what it means. It means that there's a new king that has been born and a new king that has been born king of the Jews. They recognize it from far, far away. That somehow God has communicated to them in a way that they could understand. So that even from far away, they knew what was happening. And so they come and they make the long journey and they come. And of course, if you're going to find the new king of the Jews, where are you going to go? To Jerusalem, to the palace. Congratulations on the new baby. Oh, what do you mean you didn't have one? Because we thought the new king of the Jews has been born. And this is where Herod, who is sitting as king of the Jews, this is Herod the Great, by the way. You don't get that name on accident. Herod the Great, who really liked building things and getting his name all over everything. Uh, he built some very impressive places. If you go to Israel, you can still see some of the uh, places with the uh, evidence of things that he built. He built a lot of stuff, a lot of really cool stuff. This Herod, um, here's there's going to be another king. This Herod is the kind of king who was so protective of his role as king that he had actually in the past, murdered members of his own family when he suspected they might be trying to overthrow him. Yeah. You don't get the name the great on accident. <laughs> he wanted this kind of, uh, of attention and of fame and of power and authority. He wanted to be that kind of ruler, and he was. 
But because he's that kind of ruler, when he hears that somebody else has been born who may be the king of the Jews, oh, not on my watch, right? And therefore, this is why um, he says to the, the wise men deceitfully, says, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. You know the story. This is uh, not what he actually is wanting to do. He doesn't actually want to go and worship the newborn king. He wants to get rid of the threat to his rule. And so he just pretends to want to worship. So what we have here are some major contrasts. On the one hand, you have Caesar, or not Caesar, you have Herod, great and powerful, Herod the Great, who is the king of the Jews. On the other hand, you have a baby born, as I mentioned in the video, to a teenage mom in Bethlehem of all places. And the question we're left with is, who is the real king of the Jews? We have another contrast between the wise men who have come to actually worship the king of the Jews, and we have Herod, who only pretends to. And that's the second uh, question for us. Because this is part of when we go through Christmas celebrations each year. Think back to the wedding thing I was talking about earlier. The question is, do we really want to worship the true king? Or like Herod, do we just want to make a show of worship so we can get rid of him as quickly as possible and get back to ruling our own lives? Does that make sense? Because we're all, in a sense, in the role of Herod. There are areas that we have kind of rulership over in our lives. What do we do with that? Do we recognize that that is something that Jesus also has a claim on? That Jesus actually is the true king who rules over even that area of our lives? Or do we just want to make a show of worshiping him so that we can get rid of him as quickly as possible and get back to running our own lives? That's a real question. And it's especially challenging when we consider that the kind of king that Jesus is is exactly the kind that we need, but not very often the kind that we want. We don't vote for people that look like Jesus. We vote for people who look like Herod. We want somebody who is able to get things done and who can build all kinds of things, amazing things, wonderful things. Things that don't last. But when Jesus comes along and actually seeks to build something completely different, seeks to build something that actually will last, 
we tend to turn away because it doesn't look right. It doesn't look like what we were expecting or hoping for after all. And this is why it's so fascinating that the wise men recognize Jesus. Not just from a star, but as they come to the baby, it's not like they get there and they're expecting this king and they come and there's this baby and this young mom and they, they, don't, they don't get there and go, oh, you know what, never mind. <laughs> and turn around and go give their gifts to Herod. They don't. They still recognize this is the one that God has provided to be the true king. That's amazing. We go back to John's, uh, the Revelation. One of the things that is, uh, just before what we read earlier in Revelation about this vision John is having, there's a, there's a part of this vision, and I, I struggle to describe this at all without going into too much, but there is this scroll that is sealed, and so you can't open it. And basically, it's like this is how God is going to resolve all the brokenness of the world. How is he going to put it all right again? And we'd like to know that, right? But it's sealed, and it can't be opened. And so in John's vision, he weeps and weeps because only somebody who's worthy to open it can open it. And there's nobody worthy. Nobody can open it. We can't ever know. And then it says, uh, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. This is in chapter five, by the way. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. There's a lot more description there that may cause you more problems than, <laughs> uh, than help right now, although it's really worth going through. When the lamb takes this scroll, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Okay, back up just a bit. Did you hear what just happened there? In this vision, John is weeping and weeping because there's nobody who's worthy. You look out at all the people over all of human history, and there's nobody who's worthy to open the scroll to see what it is. How, how is God going to put everything right again? Or is it just too broken? But then there is one. And the elder says, don't weep because the lion of Judah has done it and he's worthy. And this is where it's so bizarre, but so cool. When you think of the lion of Judah, this is who had been prophesied all the way back in Genesis 49, that someone was going to come from uh, Judah and the scepter is not going to depart from him, etc. And you have this picture of a lion in mind. What does that look like to you? Power? Strength? Right? And so you think, yes, the lion of Judah has done it. And then John turns and looks 
to see the Lion of Judah and how it is that he has conquered, how it is that he has uh, actually been victorious and has triumphed. And when he looks, what he sees is a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. You hear all this? At the center of the throne. That there is uh, authority and rulership happening here. But it's not the kind of power and strength that we typically picture. It's not that kind of ruling. The way that he has done it is not the way that the world typically does things, which is why nobody else was found that was worthy. The way he did things is by giving up his life for us. Like a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, and yet standing. In, in this one little bit right here in this vision, you get the whole story of Jesus, who is the promised one, who, has, who is worthy because he's different than everybody else. Who has uh, saved people with a different kind of power. With a love that's greater than our usual kinds of love. And who has given up his life, but who has also been resurrected, raised from the dead to rule on the throne. You see all of that right there? It's amazing. It looks very different from Herod the Great to the point that it makes the phrase the great sound ridiculous. It was what Herod was striving for. A worldly greatness. And he got it. More is the pity. As we walk through these days after Christmas and we think about what it looks like after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, I want us to remember these contrasts. I hope you were paying attention to the video we showed in the children's sermon where it shows that turning over of the systems of this world, the turning over of the ways that we normally do things. And you have Herod sitting on his throne, all powerful, and then it revolves around and you see a baby. So different. As Isaiah reminds us, God's ways are not our ways. But his ways are better. And so as we go from uh, Christmas, the question is, do we recognize Jesus as the true king and the one who is worthy? Not just to open a scroll, but worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And secondly, not only do we recognize him as the king, but then once we recognize him as that king, do we respond like Herod or do we respond like the wise men? Do we seek him out to get rid of him so we can still rule? Or do we seek him out so we can bow before him? I'm going to ask you to do something weird if you choose to do like the wise men. You probably have a way that you go home from here typically. You notice at the end of the section we read that it said that uh, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Just today, you don't have to do this every week, but just today, as a reminder when you leave here, 
if you want to follow the way of the wise men and worship Jesus rather than follow the way of Herod and try to get rid of him, take a little bit different route home. Go around a block one time or something. Just as a way of kind of putting that flag in the sand and saying, for today, I choose to follow Jesus, the true king over all kings. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and we thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you for the good news of uh, the one person who ought to be king actually being the king. And Lord, we do apologize for the ways that we have um, missed the plot of your story. The ways that we seek to be kings in our own uh, little areas. The ways that we seek to rule in the ways of this world. The ways that we try to climb the ladders that lead to nothing. Lord, we pray you would give us a new perspective. Give us the true perspective. Lord, help us to serve the true king and to follow in his way. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.